I had a subtitle, probably could have been The Simplicity of the Gospel, but I didn't put that in my notes. Let's open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and your grace as we approach your word, that we would approach it specifically to understand it, not to just glory over the beauty of the words, but to actually be able to apply it to our lives, <clears throat> to be able to understand the intent and compare scripture with scripture and actually understand what is being said to whom and how it applies to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians, excuse me, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, uh, explains what we've already talked about several weeks in a row of why Paul approached Corinth differently than he did Athens, for instance. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 9, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. <clears throat> For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. <clears throat> Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, that is mature, that's what perfect means here, complete, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to nothing. Verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God and a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. <clears throat> We're running short on time here. It's encouraging to me to know that Paul saw simplicity and direct reference to God's word as being of value, to be of greater value than all the human reasoning that he was so well equipped to provide. He could you know, he was extremely well-educated. Even the unbelievers recognized, oh, you have great education, you have great learning. <clears throat> he said that he considered that to be trash compared to the revelation of Christ. He recognized the trap in the great education, and he knew that approaching evangelism in that way would seldom or never bear fruit. <clears throat> I'm sure... Every one of you probably knows somebody that would tell you that they came to Christ because of some wonderful presentation by so-and-so. Okay, that's fine. But ultimately, it still comes down to a very simple decision. Will I, will I not go with this man? You know, Re Rebecca in, in uh, Genesis chapter 24, when the servant of Abraham showed the glory of the son and the father, uh, she agreed that, she'd like to go and her family tried to intervene because they didn't want her to leave so fast and the servant said no the, the deal's done the bride price is paid and they said well we're going to ask her will you go with this man and she said yes I'll go alright at that point they began the journey to the son <clears throat> it's interesting too that although the father sent the servant when he came back he reported back to the son not the father you can read that, Genesis chapter 24. It's a long chapter, wonderful story. We see parallels of the Christian experience. <clears throat> the bride price was paid at the cross. All the servant brought was news of the bride price. 
he told the riches of the son of the father but all the way across the desert he was telling her about the son and all the way through our life on earth the holy spirit is telling us about the son <clears throat> Notice in verse, um, make sure I get it right, chapter 1, uh, verse 21, it says, the world by wisdom knew not God. It says, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, so it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save, save them that believe. <clears throat> it doesn't say the world by wisdom human wisdom was insufficient it doesn't say that that sometimes it worked but not always it says the world by wisdom knew not God that is not how people come to know the Lord we talked about this before that the door to the truth is the will not the intellect you can argue all you want on an intellectual basis and somebody can still put up the roadblock that says well that's not enough information for me okay fine you know at some point you're going to make a decision. And in that person's case, I'd say, really, they've already made a decision. They've decided, I'm not going to have anything to do with that, and you can't make me. Okay, that's your decision. I hope you change your mind. <clears throat> so here he warns that our clever approaches not only don't help, but they actually render the true message ineffective and fruitless. And that's what we saw back in 1 Corinthians verse 17. He says, Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. It could render the cross ineffective. That you're too busy worrying about the wonder of your words rather than the wonder of the cross. <clears throat> so Paul learned that lesson in Athens. He had preached there. It was a sermon that was Still today, as everybody thinks is so wonderful, and I've actually known people that bragged that they, I preached that sermon on Mars Hill. Uh, I didn't say anything, but I just thought, yeah, I'll bet it had exactly the same effect as it did when Paul preached. Nothing. You're just bumping your gums. There was very little response. Un unlike the times before where he simply taught people God's word, that time it mainly drew mockery and yeah yeah we'll hear you again sometime <clears throat> when Paul showed up in Athens he had arrived alone uh, possibly feeling pretty beat up and discouraged because the last three towns he'd been in he'd run out, been run out by the people by the unbelieving Jews so he shows up in Athens he's by himself he, there isn't a synagogue to preach in evidently <clears throat> he didn't go there uh, he preached in the marketplace and so forth until the city fathers said you need to do this officially they took him to Mars Hill and that's what we read about in Acts chapter 17 where Paul gave this short well said message but almost no response he was well educated from human perspective possibly he got there and thought well now, these people are all very well educated these are people that understand philosophy these are people that know how to think I'm going to talk to them in their own language, which he absolutely knew, and it failed. That's not how people come to Christ. He was well-educated from human perspective, and he attempted just that once to approach people, <clears throat> other educated men, by appealing to their sense of reason. 
and it simply did not work. There was no church ever established in Athens. They saw themselves as too smart for God. Now, what we read back in <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 24, excuse me, verse 23, chapter 1, verse 23, says, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, an offense, and unto the Greeks foolishness. See, that divides people, the unbelievers, into two major groups. I suppose there's others, but the two major groups is those that are too good for God. I'm religious. I don't need that. I'll have my own way. And those that are too smart for God. What a, what a crock. I'm not going to listen to that. That's a bunch of foolishness. You believe in fairy tales. See, they're either too good for God or too smart for God. <clears throat> too religious for God or too smart for God. <clears throat> so the people in Athens were just an example of how God said the Greeks tended to respond to the message of Christ. The Jews were offended by the message, partly because they thought it was impossible for Jesus to be the Messiah, and partly because they had a national guilt to deal with in the fact that they'd killed him. <clears throat> and that's what we saw in Acts chapter 2, when the, the, it said the people heard his message, and they were cut to the heart, and they said, what shall we do? What are we going to do? Because they, the Jews there in Jerusalem, when Peter preached, in Acts chapter 2, they recognized that they had killed the Messiah. They confessed it. They said, well, what are we going to do? He says, repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay. To that specific group. By the way, that's the only group that were told that. They were the ones that had killed Jesus. <clears throat> Paul reflected on this experience, and he announced in in. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. And we still run into that problem today. There's a lot of people that are so convinced of their own innate goodness that they don't need grace. They don't need a Savior. And there's even more people that are convinced of their own brilliant mental capacity that I'm too smart for that. <clears throat> and that's, by the way, that's common even among people that are very poorly educated and quite frankly aren't all that bright. They still think they're too smart for Jesus. See, I think I told some people Wednesday that the, the tribal people in the South America have told the missionaries, well obviously you guys are stupid. Why? Well because our two-year-olds and three-year-olds can speak our language better than you. So we just got here. We're trying to learn your language. And you don't speak our language. He says, yeah, but nobody speaks your language. Look, everybody here speaks our language. There's only four of you. Why should anybody speak your language? See, they're not even aware the rest of the world exists, but they're sure that they're smart and you're dumb. <clears throat> I remember rejecting the message of God myself because I thought it was folly. I thought I was smart. I thought I had all the answers. But I eventually discovered I could not free myself from sin. I could not be holy as God calls us to be. And I continually made errors in judgment. I was neither too good nor too smart. I was a condemned sinner. And from his own account, Paul had already known that truth too. <clears throat> but in Athens, for some reason, he attempted to appeal to human reasoning, but he quickly observed it was not only ineffective, it was counterproductive. Those people responded with the same kind of reasoning and decided they were not interested. And his conclusion was that such an approach was making the cross of Christ be of none effect. 
And Paul was determined never to make that same error again. He says, when I came to you, I was determined to, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to know all this stuff anymore. I'm not going to impress you with how much I understand the world around me. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. <clears throat> so in verse 1, he says, when I came to you, I was, uh, actually that's in verse 2, he says, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. <clears throat> he said, I was, he also said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. I'm sure that each of you have heard evangelists pleading and begging and whispering and they're not, they're speaking with enticing words. They're not flat telling you the truth and letting you make a decision. <clears throat> She says, I came to you not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So why was he in fear then? Well, it could have been a natural fear. He got the jabbers beat out of him in Philippi and was still carrying the wounds from that. And in Thessalonica, they were going to get him. They just didn't find him. They found somebody else instead. And... Uh, in Corinth, uh, we, we read about it in Acts chapter 18, they did drag him before the magistrate and they were going to try to get him in trouble with the government again. And He'd already been in jail once and beaten up real bad. <clears throat> I'm sure that added to his natural fear, but God turned the tables on him. The governor said, I'm not interested in your stupid religious laws, and he ran him out of, court, out of this court set Paul free and the unbelieving Greeks beat up the head of the synagogue, the chief ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes who'd just gotten the job of chief ruler of the synagogue because the previous chief ruler of the synagogue Christmas had become a believer he'd become a Christian, they didn't, couldn't have that, you're fired man so now Sosthenes got beat up and by the time we got to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1 we find out that Sosthenes has also become a believer and is working with Paul. He's traveling with Paul. It's quite a heavy testimony. See, so they saw the power, they saw the demonstration of the power of God in the lives of the people there. <clears throat> My suspicion is that it wasn't a physical fear of getting beat up again. I mean, it could have been, but I don't think that was it. I think he was afraid because of the mistake he'd made at Athens, and he didn't want to make that mistake ever again. Uh, everybody that's spoken to you from this pulpit has told you that we study the word in fear and anxiety that we're not going to make a mistake and teach wrong. God doesn't put up with false teaching. I don't mean just mistakes. I'm talking about people that deliberately are false teaching to, to because they got a hidden agenda. Well, nobody here's got a hidden agenda. We're not trying to you know, gain disciples or get money or anything like that. We're trying to teach the Word of God. <clears throat> Every faithful teacher or preacher of God's Word is careful and anxious to not teach wrongly. We understand the potential for eternal impact on the lives of others. If I tell somebody something mistaken that turns out to they're offended by it or whatever, they turn away from God's Word because of me, then I personally feel like I'm in trouble. I'm, you know, if I was earnestly trying to teach God's word correctly and 
it had a bad effect. I don't think that I'm in trouble over that. Uh, you know, if you try to feed somebody and it turns out that they're allergic to what you try to feed them, they didn't know it, you didn't know it, you're not in trouble. You're sad, you're, they're sad, everybody's unhappy, but you're, nobody's holding it against you. The missionaries that went to India years ago and dug wells all over the country to get rid of typhoid and all the other cholera and other diseases that were killing millions of people, they dug wells so people would have clean water all over India. Yeah, but it turned out 50, 60, 80 years later, it turned out they tested the water and found out it was loaded with arsenic. It turns out the groundwater all over India has arsenic in it. Do they have filters today that could take that out? Yeah, but nobody knew it back then. So there's like 200 million people suffering from arsenic poisoning across India, and they're all blaming the missionaries that dug the wells. Okay, that doesn't make good sense. There have been millions of them would have died from cholera and typhoid and these other pathogens without the clean water. Nobody knew about the arsenic, just like nobody knew about the potential for lead poisoning from the pipes in Flint, Michigan, or any other place, because I don't know if you know this or not, the word plumbing comes from the Latin word plomo, which is lead. All pipes used to be made out of lead. It was the easiest way, it was a soft metal, it was easily melted, it was a very low melting temperature, and you could make good pipes out of it, and it didn't rust. No, poison you, but hey, it didn't rust. You know, but they didn't know about lead poisoning. You hear about mad hatters. They used to cure the felt for hats with mercury. And nobody knew that mercury caused insanity. Okay? So the guys that were making the felt were going crazy. Nobody's, nobody's pointing a finger and blaming them. Ignorance is one thing, but deliberately falsely teaching or because of laziness, because of not studying, that's not excusable. So I think that Paul was more in fear that he would make another serious mistake like it was made at Athens. <clears throat> Paul strove to demonstrate the power of God in his own life and in the word of God as it transformed the lives of believers. So why no enticing words? Paul concluded that his reason for very careful teaching is his abstinence from human wisdom and enticing words was for one eternal purpose. He says it's that your faith should not stand on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's an, that's an important difference. If I ask somebody, they, and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I said, how'd you become a believer? Well, I went forward in church when I was 12. Okay, what's missing there? the gospel not Jesus died for my sins and I placed my trust in him no they think somehow that going forward in church when they were 12 or something qualified them to be in God's family it's sorry it doesn't do anything you know raising your hand in youth group or whatever it was signing a tract when you're in college <clears throat> those, those things have nothing to do with the gospel the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection as full payment for our sins, which, being believed in, is the power of God to save those who believe. That's what God says about the gospel. That's why Paul is bringing just the plain message of salvation. An evangelist may preach a brilliant message and people may flock to him to hear it, but if they're just being persuaded by his brilliant rhetoric, then those people may have only become acolytes of that particular teacher. Yeah, I love listening to John MacArthur. Well, 
Okay, how about Jesus? Where'd you get on with him? Oh, I like Mr. Doctor. No, 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 no. I want to know about Jesus. See, they may not have responded to the gospel at all. And if he's an honest, sincere teacher, he'd be horrified to find out that that's what happened. When Paul and Barnabas were in, I want to say Lystra, uh, can't remember now, in Acts chapter 14, uh, the people there decided that Paul and Barnabas were gods come down to earth because they healed some guy. God used them to heal a man. I think it was a lame man, if I remember. And they pronounced them gods and even put names on them. That Barnabas was, because I guess because he was older, uh, I think they said he was Zeus or Jupiter or something, and, and that uh, Paul was Mars, uh, Ares, the, the messenger god. Uh, Mercury, whatever his name was, <clears throat> one of those planets. And what did, how did Paul and Barnabas feel about that? Because the, the priests came down from the temple to make sacrifices to them. Paul and Barnabas tore their clothes and ran out into the midst of the congregation and said, men and brethren, we are men just like you. We're not gods. Yes, we're messengers of God, but we're not gods. They were horrified at that response. They didn't want anybody following them. They wanted them following Jesus. And that's what we're here about. <clears throat> However, for a false teacher, that's actually the del deliberate goal, is to gain acolytes, to gain disciples, to gain followers. In Acts chapter 20, verse 30, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that there would rise up amongst them grievous wolves desiring to draw away disciples after themselves and not caring for the flock. Paul called them grievous wolves. Jesus had referred to them as wolves in sheep's clothing. We still use that phrase today. I think he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. What do you mean? You mean that he's, he's acting like a nice guy, but he's a predator. And that these false teachers would be spiritual predators. So what is he trying to instill? He had a godly fear, and he was trying to instill that godly fear in, the, in his hearers and to transmit the light of God unfiltered and undiminished. He desperately desired to not commit any errors that might produce false believers, false fruit. And his earnest desire was that no one will be so impressed with his articulate, well-reasoned, and erudite speech that that's why they called themselves believers. <clears throat> he wanted God's light to come through unshaded and unfiltered by himself. When we shine a physical light through a glass or a plastic lens or something like that, we usually want a clear lens unless there's some specific reason that we want a colored light then we want a clear lens. We don't want it diminished by the, by, want the light diminished by the lens, and we don't want it colored so that we're seeing things in the wrong light. I've noticed that in certain lights, I don't see very well in terms of determining one color from another. Some of the lamps in our house are rather yellowish, and there's certain shades of blue and green that I can no longer tell apart. Now, they tell me when I get these cataracts fixed, that'll straighten that out, but... Honestly, I'd rather fix it some other way and get some white lights, but there's going to come a day when that's no longer enough. <clears throat> K. 
can there be a reason to want to filter a physical light or to reduce its brightness? Of course there is. That's why we wear, what do you call them, sunglasses and, and polarized driving glasses and things like that because the glare is too much. Yes, there's times we want to diminish the light. But if I'm shining the light from my car, I need to be able to see it. If I, the headlights are covered with road grime, or worse yet, my windshield is covered with road grime, then visibility is going to be poor. It's not that the light has anything wrong with it. The problem is me, and the problem is those, that glass. It's not clean. <clears throat> I hope we can agree that we'd prefer to see God's light clearly and without artificial colors. As teachers, we want to transmit the full spectrum of God's light. We want his light to shine without restriction. And in the past, we've pointed out this thing about the headlights on cars, that once they get covered up with the road grime, the light inside is just as bright, but it isn't doing any good. And it could be something in my life that's causing road grime on my life, so to speak, that people look at it and say, well, I don't know, he may be telling the truth, but I, don't, I wouldn't want to be like him. And I've known guys like that. I think they were genuine believers, and I know they were preaching the straight gospel, but their life was so completely loaded with anger and bitterness and bad words and yelling at people and stuff that, holy mackerel, nobody wants to be like that. You know, Their testimony was shot completely. And when they finally got fired from where we were working, nobody missed them at all. They had a horrible testimony. <clears throat> So we don't want the failures and dirt in our own lives to diminish the light of God for others. That could have eternal consequences in their lives, and that alone should be a major source of fear and trembling to any honest teacher. And, God, and Paul was no, no exception. When he says, I came to you with fear and trembling, my opinion is that that was the source of the fear and trembling. He didn't want to mess up. <clears throat> now, in verses 6 through Nine, he says something interesting. He says, but we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, it says in King James. The, the word perfect there means mature, that he's not talking to babes anymore. He says, if you've got the maturity to understand it, I do want to go further. I'm not just going to tell about Jesus and stop. i got lots more to say, but, but that's got to be the foundation. If you're not saved because of placing your faith in Jesus' shed blood at the cross, then I haven't got anything more to share with you. The rest of us just stuff yeah, as a believer you need but as an unbeliever the only thing you need is Jesus so at this point when a believer is becoming very solid in his or her faith Paul says he could go ahead and use logic and grammar and all the you know textual proofs and things like that that people hunger for there's nothing wrong with that when you know you folks that come to evening bible study we do that kind of stuff all the time we're looking at it who is he talking to What's he saying? Is this plural or singular? Is this past, present, or future, etc.? That kind of stuff is important for, for gaining an understanding of God's word. But when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you need to be direct and share the simplicity of the gospel. We're lost sinners as, as, a, as a race, the whole human race. And if you don't believe it, just go read the news. One day only, it ought to convince you. We're a wreckage. It goes with the territory of being human. And God's only solution for it was the cross. His only solution. When we talk about Jesus being plan A and there is no plan B, that's why. The bad news is such that there's only one answer. <clears throat> We're not going along with world consensus as to the meaning of the Bible. We're not going to the world's wisdom. 
He says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, hyper-educated uh, seminarians to find out what God's word means, because frequently they've given up on the truth of the of the gospel, and they're they're enjoying being smart. I've known guys like that. I knew a guy that had started out at let's see, what's it called, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which is a good school. Or at least it was. I think it still is. Everything I've heard says it's still a solid school. They teach the Word of God, and they teach it as the Word of God. But he went from there to some seminaries in Germany and France and came away no longer believing the Bible is the Word of God. And I've heard him teach in church that, you know, that's all mythology, you know, right there. Really. Okay. So he's abandoned his faith. We use scripture to interpret scripture, and we show believers how inc incredibly well the whole Bible fits together as the work of one author, God. We teach the truth of his word, and believers are del delighted. We're thrilled by the way God's word is deeply and eternally true, not just superficially or temporarily. So we're called to feed the flock, and the specific food that we're called to feed them is the Word of God. That's why when we talk to anybody that wants to be a teacher here, we tell them sheep food only, please. God's Word. You teach from God's Word. We don't feed the flock on philosophy or politics or current events or personal opinions. We feed the flock of God on God's written Word. That's sheep food. And we show the hidden wisdom in the word of God to which the unbeliever is blind that they're never going to see it as of being of value and we see the parallels between for instance the Noah's Ark I think we listed like 15 or 18 direct parallels between the Ark and the person of Christ and they all fit and they fit tight it wasn't just a ooh that's kind of similar isn't it no it was right on that is a picture of Christ and then we find places in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 10.4, where Paul reminded them of this spiritual rock, he called it that, that followed them in the physical desert, feeding them living water, and he says that rock was Christ. He didn't say it looked like him, but it was a, a kind of a metaphorical thing, you know. No, he says it was Christ. I, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. My hair doesn't stand up this way because of the goosebumps. It's just because it doesn't comb all that well. <clears throat> but I, my scalp is tingling right now just thinking about the, the fullness of the wisdom of God's Word and how things fit together. There's some hidden wisdom that is going to remain hidden. For instance, we can only tell you a little bit about when, what went on before the creation of this world. I can think of three or four things that I know for sure because God says so. And I might, you know, surmise some other things, but I'm real careful about that because if God doesn't say it, then the chances of it being true are, you know, exponentially greater the farther I'll get away from God's word. I know some things that happened before the creation of this world, and I know some things about his purpose that he states was his purpose before the creation of this world. I know them because God said so. But they're fairly dim. He doesn't tell us very much. And we know some things that are happening after the destruction of this world. We know some things that are long, deep future, in eternity future. But we know very little because he doesn't tell us very much. 
It's interesting, though, that <clears throat> that a false teacher, since they are frustrated by the fact that they don't know what went before and what went after, and some of the things that they don't understand in the scripture, they'll branch out into imagination and supposition and start teaching as truth things that they made up. And I can, I'm not going to go into examples here, but there's lots of them. Uh, if you go into almost any so-called Christian bookstore, you can get books by people who claim that they either physically went to or in a vision went to heaven, and they're going to tell you all the details about what it's, what it's like there. That's real interesting because he says, I have not seen nor has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has for those has in store for those that love him. Really, if he says that nobody has guessed it, nobody has imagined it, and nobody has seen it or heard it, then where are you guys getting this information? There's only one source, folks. And Paul points out that had the religious real leaders really understood the truth regarding who God is and, and how he's building eternal things from very temporal base, <clears throat> if they'd understood that, they wouldn't have attacked Jesus. If they had truly seen that he was the Messiah, really the Messiah, that they'd been preaching and they'd been hoping for, they would have dropped all their, their religious pageantry and grasped to him. But they didn't. They said he was messing up their business. They were making a lot of money. And so they had him killed. <clears throat> People love to explain their own existence and justify their philosophical positions extra-biblically, extra outside the Scripture. But there are a lot of questions that God simply doesn't address. He doesn't answer. And as a result, people do start making things up. And if, it, if these people claim they have all the special information that was hidden from everyone when God specifically says that he didn't give it to them, then I think you need to be real, real careful about what information you're consuming. Notice in verse 9, it does say, As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, things which God has in store <clears throat> for his children. So when people say such things and telling all about all these unseen things, I remember reading one of them. The guy claimed that all these different angels would periodically stop into his house for coffee, and he, he was given their names and their physical descriptions and you know, saying the length of God's hand and come on people how, how much does it take for you to recognize that that's pure poison that's a lie there's a guy he's currently teaching lives in Portland area he claims that his ministry is so dangerous to the kingdom of darkness that a demon came and attacked him physically and bit his hand really so you're thinking maybe your life was more dangerous to the kingdom of darkness than Paul's was or Peter's or any of those guys? Because no demons attacked them or bit them. I, I really have a problem when people start talking that way. Because it comes off real quick as being a lie. If it isn't clearly laid out in God's word, there were, you're under no obligation to believe it. If I share something with you that isn't in God's word, I hope every time I'm going to tell you this isn't in the word, this is what I think, I can't prove it. You can read for yourself and decide what you think, but God doesn't address this. 
That's the best I can tell you. I'm not going to tell you, well, this is so because I say so. Well, if I start saying that, it's time for me to stop teaching. If it isn't clearly laid out in God's Word, you're under no obligation to believe it. In fact, we're warned not to believe it. In Mark chapter 13, verses 21 and verse, yeah, verse 21, Jesus warned that there were going to be people coming and claiming to be the Messiah and others claiming there's the Messiah, pointing to someone and saying this is him. And he says, don't believe him. It's a lie. There's going to be false teachers. Second uh, Peter chapter 2 starts off with there was false prophets among them and there's going to be false teachers among you. So there's a warning here for us. And Paul was fearful lest he even get close to the edge of doing any false teaching. So what about us? you got teachers here among you. What about us? We're going to do our best to continually feed the flock on God's word. We're going to study carefully. We're going to be searching anxiously to be sure that we lead no one astray. We haven't got any hidden agendas, and we're accountable to God for the, for the outcome. Going back to chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 2, I'd like to point out again that this epistle is to you. If you're a believer, this is to you. It says, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, well, that's them, through the will of God, excuse me, let's skip back up to verse 1, to them that are sanctified in Jesus, okay, well, that's the church in Corinth, but then he goes on to say, there's a comma there, he says, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus. That's where you're included. So when we read this, you need to take it seriously and recognize it's talking to you. As we saw in Acts chapter 17, we were encouraged to study the scriptures and check out what you're being taught. It says in uh, chapter 17, Acts 17, 11, these in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You don't just take it at face value. Go study it. Read it. Write down the scriptures. I love it when somebody in either here in church or in Wednesday night meeting or we're going to be starting to have a morning study also next week uh, on Daniel and Revelation. I love it when somebody says, what, what, what was that reference? And they're writing it down. Why? Because they're going to go look it up. They're going to see if I'm just talking off the side of my off the top of my head or if I've, if, if I've really studied correctly. I love that. That's what I want. You search the scripture to make sure you're being taught correctly. You see, we're each accountable to God for our response to his truth and our response to things that aren't his truth. If we're willing to take just anything we hear and believe it because I heard it on the radio, sorry, that's not a good reason. But if you heard it and you went and looked it up and think, huh, you know, I never saw that before. That seems to be true. And you check some more and finally determine that is what God's word says. I, I don't know how I missed it, but that is what it says. Okay, that's a good thing. That's how we learn. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you'd raise us up from babyhood so that we're no longer toddling along and being swept back and forth by different winds of doctrine and ideas and powerful speakers and teachers, but, but we'll be finding a firm foundation in your word and getting our feet on the rock of God's word so that we can't be moved, we can't be swept off our feet by some wave of false doctrine. 
We'd ask for your mercy as we study that we'd be given the spirit of wisdom and of understanding so that we're not going to be led astray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.